0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled Evangelicalism. We've spent a couple of episodes laying out the genesis of theological liberalism and concluded the last episode with a brief look at the conservative reaction to it in what's been called Evangelicalism. Evangelicalism was one of the most important movements of the 20th century. The label comes from that which lies at the center of the movement, a devotion to an orthodox and traditional understanding of the evangel, that is, the Christian gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. While evangelicalism is used today mainly to describe the theological movement that came about as a reaction to Protestant theological liberalism, the term can be applied all the way back to the first century believers who referred to themselves as people of the gospel, the evangel. The term was resurrected by reformers to call themselves evangelicals before identifying as Protestants or any other label used for Protestant denominations today. The modern flavor of evangelicalism came about as a merging of European pietism and revivals among Methodists in England. We might even locate the origin of modern evangelicalism in the first great awakening of the mid-18th century. Its midwives were people like Whitfield, Tennant, Heisen, and, of course, Jonathan Edwards. Since a major stress of all these was the need of a conversion experience and a spiritual new birth, revivalism and an emphasis on the task of evangelism has been front and center in evangelicalism. As we saw in a previous episode, the First Great Awakening was followed a century later by the Second, which began in the United States and spread to Europe, then the rest of the world, and had a huge impact on how Christians viewed their faith. What's remarkable about the Second Great Awakening is that it came at a time when many church leaders lamented the low state of the church in Western civilization. Christianity's enemies gleefully wrote its obituary. Theological liberalism helped to push the faith toward an early grave. But the Second Great Awakening literally shook North America and Europe to their core. A wave of missionaries went out across the globe as a result, spreading the faith to places that no church had existed for hundreds of years, and in some cases, ever before. In newly settled regions on the American frontier, evangelicalism was carried out in week-long camp meetings. Think of a modern concert with multiple bands. Camp meetings were like that except in place of bands playing music were preachers passionately preaching the gospel. Might not sound too appealing to our modern sensibilities, but the lonely pioneers of the frontier turned out in huge crowds. They'd been too busy building homesteads to consider constructing frontier churches, but now they returned home to do that very thing. One of the largest of these camp meetings took place at Cane Ridge in Kentucky in August of 1801. Upwards of 20,000 gathered to listen to Protestant preachers of all stripes. Methodist minister Francis Asbury was just one of several circuit riders who carried the gospel all over the American frontier. Both Baptists and Methodists worked tirelessly to bring the gospel to blacks. But the fierce racism of the time refused to integrate congregations. Separate churches were planted for black congregations, of which there were many. In the early 19th century, Richard Allen left the Methodist Church to found the African Methodist Episcopal Church. In the United States, it wasn't long before Evangelical Baptists and Methodists outnumbered older denominations of Episcopalians and Presbyterians—groups where theological liberalism had infiltrated. Charles Finney was an attorney-turned-revivalist who transferred the excitement and energy of the rural camp meetings to the urban centers Of the American Northeast. An innovator, Finney encouraged the newly converted to share the story of how they came to faith. It was called giving your testimony. He set what he called the anxious bench near the front of the room where he spoke as a place where those who wanted prayer or to make a profession of faith in Christ could sit. That eventually turned into the modern altar call. That's a standard fixture of many evangelical churches today. By the start of the American Civil War in the mid-19th century, evangelicalism was the predominant religious position of the American people. In an address delivered in 1873, Reverend Theodore Woolsey, one-time president of Yale, could say, without the least bit of controversy, quote, The vast majority of people believe in Christ and the gospel. Christian influences are universal. Our civilization and intellectual culture are built on that foundation, unquote. While there are many brands, flavors, and emphases inside modern evangelicalism, it's safe to characterize the evangelical as someone who holds to several core beliefs, those being number one, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, number two, the uniqueness of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, number three, the need for personal conversion, and number four, the urgency of evangelism. A further refining of evangelicalism took place when there was a debate over the first of its core doctrines, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. This is where fundamentalism diverged from evangelicalism. The other three core distinctives of evangelicalism all rest on the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. And while evangelicalism began as a reaction to theological liberalism, some of the ideas of that liberalism crept into some evangelicals' view of Scripture. You see, it's one thing to say that Scripture is authoritative and sufficient, and another to then say that the entire Bible is Scripture. Is the Bible God's Word, or does it just contain God's Word? Do we need scholars and those properly educated to tell us what is in fact Scripture and what's filler? Are the actual words God's words? Or do the words need to be taken together collectively so that it's not the words but the meaning they convey that makes for God's authoritative message? Some evangelical leaders noticed that their peers were moving to a position that said that the Bible wasn't so much God's word as it contained God's message. While they weren't as extreme as the liberal theologians, they effectively ended up in the same place. This debate goes on in the evangelical church today and continues to be the source of much unrest. Conservative evangelicals started linking the authority of Scripture to the doctrine of inerrancy, that is, the belief that the Bible's original writings contain no errors, and that because of the laborious process of transmission of the text over time, while we can't say that our modern translations are perfect or without any error, they are virtually inerrant. They are trustworthy versions of the originals. At the dawn of the 20th century, Princeton Theological Seminary became the epicenter of this debate as a leading defender of the authority of the Bible. It had long been an advocate for the infallibility of Scripture under such luminaries as Archibald Alexander, Charles Hodge, and his son A. A. Hodge, as well as B. B. Warfield. In a seminal essay on the doctrine of inspiration in the Princeton Review, A. A. Hodge and B. B. Warfield defined inspiration as producing the absolute infallibility of Scripture. They said that the autographs, the original writings of the Bible, were free from error, not just in regard to theological matters, but in contradiction to what theological liberalism claimed, they were without error in regard to all their assertions, including those touching science and history. The theological liberalism coming from Europe had a mixed reception in the United States at the outset of the 20th century. At first, most churches remained conservative and blissfully unaware of the slow sea change taking place in the intellectual centers of American universities and seminaries. Battle lines were drawn between liberals and conservatives who were branded with a new label, fundamentalists. The battle they carried out in the hallowed halls of academia soon spilled over into the pews. It was referred to as the contest between modernists and fundamentalists. While modernists embraced a host of varying ideologies, they shared two presuppositions. First, they urged that Christianity must be reframed in light of new insights, meaning the tenets of Protestant liberalism. And second, the faith had to be liberated from the cultural incrustations of traditionalism that had obscured the real meaning of the Bible. And what that effectively meant was that all and any traditional beliefs about what the Bible said were no longer valid. It was a knee-jerk rejection of conservatism. Though the term fundamentalism wasn't coined until 1920, it flowed from the 1910 publication of a book called The Fundamentals, it was a synthesis of different conservative Protestants who united to battle the modernists who seemed to be taking over evangelicalism. Fundamentalists banded together to launch a counter-offensive. There were two streams of the early fundamentalist movement. One was an intellectual fundamentalism led by J. Gresham Machen and his Calvinist peers at Princeton. The other was a populist fundamentalism led by C.I. Schofield, who produced the best-selling Schofield Reference Bible, which contained his expansive notes and laid out a dispensationalism that many found appealing. Other notable fundamentalist leaders were R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and the Holiness Movement that moved in several denominations, but most notably among the Nazarenes. While the intellectual and populist streams of fundamentalism attempted to unite in their opposition to modernism, There were simply too many doctrinal differences between all the various groups inside the movement to allow for a concerted strategy in dealing with liberalism. As a result, modernists were able to continue their infiltration and takeover of the intellectual centers of the faith. In reaction to modernists in 1910, a group of conservative Presbyterians responded with five convictions that came to be considered the core fundamentals from which the movement derived its name. Those five convictions flowed from their certainty in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And they were, number one, the inerrancy of the original writings. Number two, the virgin birth of Jesus. Number three, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross. Fourth, his literal bodily resurrection. And fifth, a belief that Jesus' miracles were to be understood as real events and not merely literary mythology meant to teach some ethical imperative. Jesus really fed thousands with a few fish and loaves, really raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and yeah, he really walked on water. These fundamentals were elaborated and released between 1910 and 1915 in a set of booklets called The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth. The Stewart brothers funded their publication and ensured that they were distributed to every Christian leader across the United States. Some three million copies were circulated before World War I to combat the threat of modernism. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.